You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Hey, what's up? Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Roll Pod, an Alabama sports podcast for seven. I am staff writer Cody Goodwin, and I am glad you are here. Fun show for you guys today. I'm joined by fellow staff writer Mike Rodak. And Mike, I'm curious, would you like to be called a staff writer or would you like to be called uh, associate head staff writer or assistant head staff writer or even Co-staff head staff writer. writer? Like what would you what would you like your official title to be? Yeah, there's uh, there's definitely some some titles out there. I, I've always liked the senior. I don't know. I've never, I've never felt old enough to have a senior title, but maybe one of these days you can be a senior or something. It makes you feel old. I don't know. Like a, a senior citizen. But uh, I know where you're getting associate at. Staff writer, Mike Rodin. Right. There Deputy, senior, vice president of of whatever. Um, you know, there's there's certainly places that that love titles. I don't know if we are one particularly <laughs> ourselves, but um, I, I, again, I, I get what you're getting at, which is this new <laughs> Alabama staff is definitely a little bit title heavy. Um, and you know, well, I'm sure we'll get into it, but it's, uh, there's definitely a few more extra titles than what we saw in the, uh, the Nick Saban era. That is why I'm cracking these jokes to kick off today's show. Alabama's slowly starting to roll out its official coaching staff announcements. And it seems like every position has come with multiple titles, right? Uh, Freddie Roach and Robert Gillespie were kind of the first ones announced. They got promotions. Freddie Roach, defensive line coach, as well as associate head coach. Robert Gillespie is the running backs coach, as well as assistant head coach. Uh, Kane Womack was announced as the defensive coordinator inside linebackers coach. That's pretty easy. Same with Nick Sheridan, offensive coordinator, quarterbacks coach. Very simple. But then Jamarcus Shepard followed uh, Kaylin DeBoer from Washington to Alabama. He's both the receivers coach, the co-offensive coordinator, and the assistant head coach. Um, Mike, help me make sense of all these titles because there's a lot of assistant head coaches and associate head coaches. And if we're going to believe the people that were kind of announcing the coaching hires over the last month or so, I feel like there's going to be co-defensive coordinators coming, maybe a few more assistant head coaches that are going to be announced um maybe you know later this week maybe even while we're recording like what's with the titles like what are we doing here yeah so i mean it's it's somewhat of a new school thing i mean it, they've been around for a while but i think you see more coaches these days paying attention a little bit more to that um whereas some of the old school coaches were just you're the secondary coach you're the d-line coach you're whatever um and that's probably where nick saban that's kind of what he was raised in football wise and again you kind of a, a shared background with Bill Belichick and I covered the Patriots with Bill Belichick and titles were not important. Like he didn't even have an offensive coordinator, or defensive coordinator some years. And um, I can assure you there was no co anything or um, I mean, there was an assistant head coach, but it, it wasn't, you know, it was just do your job. Doesn't really matter what your title is. And I think to some extent, Nick Saban, you know, is part of that era as well. Um, because we didn't really see a whole lot of that when he was here. Um, there was co-defensive coordinators in, in 2018 with, with Tosh Lupoy and, um, and Pete Golding. Um, that was kind of a, you had two guys and they're almost competing, like feeling out which one will be the play caller and Pete Golding eventually won and, and become the, became the, you know, the play caller the next year officially. So other than that, you know, I think Holman Wiggins got assistant head coach of offense at one point. Um, and a lot of that is, um, pay related, you know, it's, it's probably comes with an increase in salary. It, it, I'm sure in a lot of cases comes with some sort of other offer that they're getting elsewhere and you're trying to compete with that. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's important to some coaches and the same thing in new England where now Gerard Mayo is the coach and he says titles are important. And that does mean something to people. And 
we've seen more of them up there. And now we see more titles with the new coaching staff at Alabama. And um, I mean, there's an associate head coach in Freddie Roach. There's two assistant head coaches and Jamarcus Shepard and Robert Gillespie. There's an offensive coordinator. There's a co-offensive coordinator in Shepard. There's a defensive coordinator in Kane Womack. There's two co-defensive coordinators in Maurice Linguist and, um, and Colin Hitchler. And I don't know, maybe there'll be another one if Christian Robinson gets that title too. <laughs> so I don't know if it really means anything operationally. Like I don't think Jamarcus Shepard, you know, is not really going to be involved in calling plays. I think that's that's going to be Nick Sheridan's area with I'm sure a lot of input from Kalen DeBoer and defensively Kane Womack's going to be calling plays and um it's more just a honorary title but I think it again means something it probably means something from a pay standpoint and we'll see that you know once the contracts get approved from uh the trustees but um it's a change and it's slightly more annoying I guess to type it all out when you we name some <laughs> of these guys but um it is what it is yeah, I well, I figured pay probably had something to do with it because I was listening to, you know, I think it was an interview with Jed Fish who took over at Washington after DeBoer left. Um, and he said one of the many reasons he actually left Arizona because it was not something that he was planning on doing was that Washington had a larger assistant coaching pay pool. And so he had the opportunity to bring all his assistants with them, or at least most of them, and pay them a little bit more than what they would have been paid at Arizona. So I wonder, you know, just kind of doing the math here, like, Alabama's probably got a larger assistant coaching pool or analyst pool or whatever the case may be to pay some of these assistants. And so I wonder if DeBoer, you know, the guys that followed him, the guys that stayed, um, hey, here's here's a little extra money to, you know, thank you for your hard work, to, you know, appreciate you sticking around, especially in the case of, you know, Gillespie and Roach, like two holdovers from Saban's last staff, um, really kind of helped keep majority of the roster together. Um, and also, you know, they coach running backs and defensive line not really any defections from those two sp position groups specifically. So like, you know, Hey, appreciate your help. Here's an extra title. Here's an extra pay bump. Um, that was honestly the first thing that came to my mind. Um, but I agree. It's a little silly. Um, just trying to keep track of everything. And like, you know, like, I wonder if that's one of the, not one of the first questions, but like, if we have time this spring, like, Hey, can you explain some of the titles to us and what it all means and why you did what you did DeBoer? Like obviously not at the top of our list in terms of pressing stuff to talk about, but yeah, like it's a mouthful every single time. <laughs> right. And you know, it's, I mean, half their staff is a co-coordinator, which I guess every assistant coach in a way is a co-coordinator. I mean, it's yeah. um, you're involved in leading the offense. You're involved in leading the defense. Like that's functionally, it's probably always been the case. It's just not, honored with the title or it hasn't been honored with the title until now. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, it is what it is. It's, uh, it's, it's one of those small things that I'm sure we're going to see a lot of little things over the months and, and the years to come that will be different than, uh, what we're used to under Nick Saban. I don't think that means it's better or worse. It's just different. And it's, it's one of those things that I think we're going to have to get used to. Yeah, which is, uh, you know, change is it's kind of exciting, you know, like I know that a lot of people are going to miss Saban and he obviously had the most legendary run in terms of college football history. But um, new sheriff in town, bringing a lot of old buddies and new faces. And like you said, things are going to be different. And, um, you know, hopefully Alabama fans embrace it because obviously this guy's had a lot of success wherever he's been, um, you know, and I have no reason to doubt that he's going to do the same thing in Tuscaloosa. Um, speaking of the staff, um, again, we think the staff is finalized, um, earlier this week had a few more final coaching moves. Um, after Ryan Grubb and Scott Huff moved on to the NFL Seattle Seahawks, Nick Sheridan officially promoted to offensive coordinator. Uh, DeBoer also went out and hired Brian Ellis, who was Georgia Southern's offensive coordinator. He's now the new tight ends coach, which is what Sheridan was initially expected to be. Uh, DeBoer also plucked two Baylor assistants, Chris, uh, Kapilovich, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. I'm just going to call him Coach Cap uh, to coach the offensive line. And then Christian Robinson coached the outside linebackers. Um, Cap fills the role vacated by Huff. Robinson fills the role vacated by William Inge, who we learned earlier, not actually joining Alabama staff and actually instead going to Tennessee, where, hey, he also got a new fancy title, right? Co-defensive coordinator. Um, we think that's the staff. Do we have initial thoughts on the hires, the movement, the staff as a whole? Right. It's um, it's it's a 
really wide ranging staff. Like it's not Washington staff to a large degree. I mean, there's um, obviously, you know, Inge we thought was coming and there was even a time I thought Chuck Morrell was coming, who was, you know, the defensive coordinator in Washington and, and really none of the defensive staff from Washington was coming. Uh, you know, obviously DeBoer tried to bring Grubb and, and Scott Huff along and, you know, just it didn't happen. It didn't work. Uh, <laughs> it would have been short-lived anyway. I think that's something even Ryan mentioned the Austin Max family. I remember reading, I apologize if it was on our side or somewhere else. I just remember the quote um, where he, Grubb was telling Austin Mack that, you know, if I'm not gone now, I might be gone later. Like, you know, it's just part of the, the deal with him. He's a sought after coach. So, um, yeah, I, I don't think that's the end of the world losing Ryan Grubb. But the point is, like, you're only bringing along Sheridan and um, Jamarcus Shepard. And I'm not even sure of how many analysts that are coming along from Washington either. I think I've seen a few of them go elsewhere. Um, I know one of his analysts at Washington, Tyler Hughes, just got hired by the, the Patriots, actually, um, going back there. He had been there previously and is going to be their wide receivers coach. So overall, in terms of like carryover from Washington, it's not a ton. It, in fact, it's, I'd say, a lot less than what you normally see with a coach who's changing jobs. Um, but with that, it's all it, – it's a lot of guys – being pulled in from different directions. I mean, you have Roach and Gillespie who have been here, you know, they've been in the SEC. You have the Washington guys, you have, you know, Mo Linguist, who's from Buffalo as their former head coach, um, has some experience elsewhere, you know, Colin Hitchler, some experience, Cincinnati, Wisconsin. You have Christian Robinson coming in, who's been around the SEC a little bit. Uh, he's just a fairly young coach, but he's been at a few stops there. And, um, Kapilovich, I'll get that one down. I just double checked the pronunciation. That is what it is. Coach Cap, um, who's been around but not really in the SEC, and right. Um, and then Brian Ellis, who's you really worked for one of the Helton brothers or the Helton father, really his entire career. Yeah. So a lot of these guys haven't worked together. I mean, there's a little bit of carryover at Western Kentucky when Jamarcus Shepard was there with Nick Sheridan, I believe it was. Um, you know, there's obviously. Sheridan was at Indiana. Um, there's a couple guys that were together. Womack and Hitchler were together for a year at South Alabama. But for the most part, these guys have never worked together. And that's a little bit unique uh, to have that many new faces on a coaching staff and, and trying to get everybody on the same page with terminology and culture and system and, and all of that. To me, it seems like you you got to give that some time like to expect all of that to just go out in the practice field on, on March 4th and have everybody on the same page and know what they're doing when it's new to the coaches, it's new to the players and the coaches are new to each other. The players are new to the coaches. Like it may not look very pretty right away. And that could extend all the way into August could extend. Well, could, a could expend, expend, extend to the spring game when we see them on the field publicly it could extend through August, could extend through September, October further. Like, it, you know, the expectations for this season with all the changes that have taken place should be somewhat tempered from what we're used to under Nick Saban. Like, it has to be because what it was under Nick Saban was a well-oiled machine that was out recruiting everybody every year, had the best coach in the country, had probably the best players in the country. And this is not bad by any means compared to that, but it's still not what that was. So, you know, talking third, fourth, fifth place finish in the SEC, like that could be where this team is. And that's perfectly fine. Like people should not freak out if that's what happens this fall. Um, but I think it's all, everybody's just looking for progress. Like you talk about chemistry, you talk about gelling, you talk about coming together. Like that's what people want to see. They want to see something that, ascends um even if it doesn't look pretty right away yeah no i think that's a that's a really good point um it's going to take time and you wrote something really well earlier this week just about how patience is going to be required within the staff within the fan base um because of all the points that you just mentioned that a lot of these guys some of these guys have worked together before which i think is going to give them a good foundation but a lot of these guys also haven't um I think there's a lot to like about the combination of this staff and this roster, right? A lot of these coaches have worn different hats, you know, two former sitting head coaches, a couple of former sitting coordinators, 
um, you know, that are now going to be more positional coaches. Um, you know, I, it's just, you know, I know DeBoer and his media car wash over the last couple of weeks has basically said like, yeah, like it's good to have all those different minds in the room, you know, because he's going to bounce a lot of different ideas off these guys and he wants to hear what they have to say. And a lot of these guys have just been through different experiences. So, you know, that's just going to, you know, you hope that it gels in a way that's obviously going to push the whole operation forward. I, I think one thing that's really interesting to me, um, or at least I thought it was interesting is that, you know, DeBoer as a head coach, um, sometimes it starts a little rocky. Um, but generally speaking, he figures things out pretty quick. And when he figures things out, things look very, very good, right? When he was at Fresno state first year was 2020. So the COVID shortened season, they went three and three. Um, the next year, 2021, they went nine and three. So then gets to Washington 2022, their first six games, he goes four and two good you know, not great. Then they went 21 and one over their next two seasons. Right. So like there's a documented history of this guy figuring it out. Like, did he have continuity of his staff between Fresno and Washington? Yes. Um, so the fact that Ryan Grubb is off to Washington now, like, you know, a lot of debate on our board, you know, is, is it Grubb's offense? Is it DeBoer's offense? Right. Like, I think you'd prefer to have them both, but um, me personally, I like DeBoer's documented history as an offensive coordinator, as a play caller to, you know, be able to have success before and after Grub. Um, again, you'd prefer to have them both, but the fact that Alabama still has DeBoer, I think that's a good thing moving forward. Um, you know, and the other thing too is like it, the the players, it's going to take time for them to figure out, you know, a lot of these players, especially the 2024 signing class, they committed to Saban, right? Like they were expecting Saban, they were expecting his assistance. Um, kudos to DeBoer and his staff for getting a lot of these guys to stick around. Um, but it's going to take some time to figure out, you know, like, hey, like this is, you know, what does this coach need for me? How does their coaching style, you know, like how do they respond to certain coaching styles? How do the coaches try to get the best out of the athletes, right? That's another hallmark of DeBoer. Like he's routinely done more with less. Now he's got the most talented roster he's probably ever had. Um, I don't know. Like there, I think there's a high ceiling here, but I think you're, I don't know if it's a warning, but like you're, your your insistence on patience from all parties involved, I think is is really smart. And I hope people take heed to that because yeah, like it might look rocky in the spring and it might look rocky at the beginning of next season because you know, hey, they got to go do Wisconsin, who's competent. They host Georgia in September, right? They still, you know, they got to go through the SEC grind. Are are a lot of these things gonna translate? We don't know yet. And that's I think what's gonna make next season super, super intriguing. Um, I mean, it was already going to be intriguing because Saban's not there, but just to see if all these things can translate um, in addition to, you know, like you said, can, can, can they build a foundation quickly and can they show progress? Um, there's a history that says they will, but it's the SEC kind of have to see it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's these next six weeks too, are going to be really important um, for not only, you know, for spring practice to start something to start to come together in the field, but you know, DeBoer is still going to have to sell his program to players over the next six weeks because there's still they're not out of the woods with the portal. Like there's still the opportunity for players to to leave. Um, and quite frankly, it would be a as we've talked about before, a little bit of an easier, cleaner move to do it to enter the portal in the summer academically to go somewhere else, as it would have been for players who all of a sudden had to do it, you know, the second or third week of January. Some players still did, but um you know, you're already starting the semester and it's just, it's, it's easier to do it in the summer. So you know, there's still, there's going to need to be a sales job. It happens that, especially for the players that might have high expectations or maybe already had high expectations for their potential roles, you know, under the Saban administration. And then DeBoer comes in and they say, Hey, maybe this schematic change helps me out. And um, I, I might even have a, a better opportunity. Well, you go out there in spring practice and you're on the third team and you're not getting any reps and and you're saying, why am I here? And that's what happens to a lot of guys. And then a lot of guys leave. So you're still, you're going to need to, um, you know, figure out how to message those guys and, and, and say that you, you need to stay around or, you know, it could even be the other way around. Like you could as a coaching staff go out there and say, we think player X is a good fit for our system, but we've seen him practice for 15 days and we're like, mm, he might not be a good fit. And maybe we need to go find someone else to, to fill that role. Um, so it goes both ways. And I, that window, April 16th through the 30th, I think is still going to be active for Alabama, um, both coming and going through the portal. But 
you know, the other point that I wanted to make too, is that I think you have to be nimble if you're Kalen DeBoer. And I know like Nick Saban had his way, like it was his playbook, offensive, defensive, his system, iron fist. He had the cachet to do that. He was coming into Alabama, even as a national champion from LSU. Um, DeBoer has been successful, but he's not what Saban was coming into Alabama. And you still have to be flexible. Um, and you think even this year on the basketball side, Nate Oates brings in a former head coach or really a sitting head coach in Austin Clanch, brings in an NBA assistant in Ryan Pannone, brings in Preston Murphy. And everybody's saying how great of a staff it was because you have pretty accomplished guys. And then a couple of weeks ago, Nate was talking about how he had to change the roles for all these guys halfway through the season because it wasn't working what they were doing the first couple of months. And they had Pannone go to the other side of the ball and stuff like that. And you have to be nimble. Like you, you, you may think that you have this great staff and they very, very well have that, but you don't know how it's all going to work out in actuality. And if, you know, certain roles or, um, you know, pieces of what you're trying to do aren't working, then Kalen Vore, I think, is going to have to, you know, figure out a plan B and not just be completely stuck in his ways. I don't think he will be either, but um, yeah, I think that's going to be important in year one is, is just feeling everything out. So um, again, it all goes back to you're going to be playing Georgia on September 28th and Georgia has their stuff figured out. Like they've been doing it in a certain way for a certain number of years. Now they have the players for it. They have the quarterback for it. And to go up against that, even though it's going to be in Tuscaloosa, is going to be a, a huge, huge challenge for where this Alabama program is right now. So um, I'm not saying you're going to lose. I'm not saying it, it's going to be bad, but like, it's going to be tough and that's going to be a huge, and I, this term is overused in sports, but measuring stick sort of game um, that between now and September, and that's only, um, I can't do math, seven months away that that's, you know, the clock's ticking on that right now. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is here to help you grow, whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits. Shopify helps you sell everywhere, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 15% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash odyssey podcast all lowercase go to shopify.com slash odyssey podcast now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash odyssey podcast uh wanted to move forward with a couple of transfer additions for alabama this week uh one high profile guy at least i think we we all agree it's high higher profile guy in keon sab safety from michigan 
uh, played in 13 games last year, 14 games, um, obviously was pretty critical in, in Michigan winning a national championship. Also got a commitment from Washington tied in Josh Cuevas. Um, I think uh, Sab is probably the bigger name, just maybe given one where he's coming from and then two, the role that he's going to fill right safety, the secondary for Alabama. I think there's a lot of opportunity for a lot of guys to figure out roles for the young guys to get playing time. That could be a potential portal position target, you know, whether it's a safety or a cornerback come April. Um, what did we think initially about the addition of Keon Sab? It seems like this, I, this, this seems like a really good pickup just because of the position that he plays and the experience that he's going to bring to that room. Right. Yeah. I think that's, that's the main um, benefit of the move is experience. Um, high level playing experience in the Big Ten in the college football playoff. He, he's not, you're not having to make that assumption that he's a group of five player or an FCS player that's that's going to be going to a, a larger school or a larger conference. Like you already have seen him on tape playing against good teams, including Alabama. He played a little bit in the Rose Bowl. So you have um, some base of knowledge there about what he can bring. So that, that certainly helps. Um, you know, I think it's like we said, it's position where they they needed some help um, because of Caleb Downs leaving. I don't think he's a one for one replacement for Caleb Downs. Caleb Downs is a very rare player, player that Alabama certainly would have loved to have back. Let's make no mistake on that. <laughs> um, like, I don't think they've upgraded like that's nobody can in their right mind say that. Um but it's better probably than going from Caleb Downs to, you know, Devontae Smith, who hasn't really played on defense through his first four years. Um, you know, Sab's played more than, than Devontae Smith has. Uh, that probably would have been a guy that would pencil in as a starter before the Sab move. Um, you know, better than, you know, we'll have to see where they put Malachi Moore what exactly they want to do with him. And he could move around. Like, I don't think anything's going to be set in stone right now, but if he's in the slot, then you really need two starting safeties. If he's at starting safety, then, um, you know, you don't really need that as much. So we'll have to see how that works. But, you know, this, this Womack defense, you know, is, is going to use some safeties. And, um, you know, I think Sab's a guy who's a little bit bigger, can play closer to the line of scrimmage. I know Andrew Ivins compared him to Kyle Duggar in New England, who's kind of that player who's it's a good a comparison. Yeah, hybrid linebacker, uh, you know, safety type. Um, so, you know, that is something they needed. So you filled the position of need. But I think, as usual, you do have to be careful to, as fans, overrate players who are in the portal, especially during a quiet time. And I remember, you know, the same thing probably happened with Tyler Harrell a couple of years ago when he was coming from Louisville. Um and everybody's like, oh, this is a great receiver who's in the portal. It was really fast. And everybody's looking at the couple of catches that he had for 70 or 80 yards at Louisville. And sometimes when a player is kind of out in the open right there and he's the only player who's on the market, you tend to lift him up on a pedestal. And Sab going into the portal as late as he has and really being alone out there right now in terms of like power five players that were in the portal the last couple of weeks, like, there's a tendency maybe to elevate that as if like he had come out right after the Rose bowl, he probably wouldn't have got quite as much attention um, because he wasn't really a, a true starter in Michigan. So, you know, you do have to be careful with overrating players um, just from that standpoint. But, you know, I, Courtney Morgan's been around him. He's you know recruited them in Michigan. Um, you know, certainly has a good understanding of them. So again, I, I think, the floor on him is is pretty high um, because you're not projecting him to a higher level. You've been around him before as a person. You kind of know who he is. It's just a question for me is where's the ceiling? You know, how good of a player can Keon Sad be if he's playing 16, I'm thinking the NFL right now, how many games would you play maximum now at the 12 team playoff? If you had a first game. round game, so that's 13 plus four, 17 games, 17 games. Yeah. So it's the same as the NFL. If you're starting key on Sav for 17 games, well, A, it means you made the national championship game, but like how <laughs> good is that defense? Like, is that is that a guy that can bring you that level of play to get you there? I guess is what I'm getting at. Like, yeah, or is he more of a role player that you don't want to be playing and exposing all that much? Um, 
that's that's going to be the question. So, again, in year one where you don't have a better option because you lost downs and maybe Xavier Mincy is not quite ready to start yet, by all means, like he, he could be your best option right now. Yeah, no, and I think just base value, like he seemed, you know, 6'1", six, six, 210 about. So a little bit bigger for a safety just in terms of, you know, the size and, you know, thumping ability that he's probably going to bring. He seemed like, you know, I, I think he's got a lot of versatility because he's pretty good in coverage um, just based on everything that I've seen. Surefire tackler doesn't really miss a whole lot. Um, you know, you could kind of put him in that star type position. Um, you know, I know Womack's going to bring a four two five, and, you know, they're going to have kind of a roving star slot guy that, you know, like you mentioned, could probably play a little bit more in the box. This could be that guy um, just because he brings that level of versatility. Um, you could also back him up to, to strong safety a little bit and have Malachi Moore just because he's been there, done that for, you know, this will be what his fifth year. He also brings that type of versatility. I think just having two guys who can do a lot of stuff in a secondary that needs guys like period, but also needs guys that can do a lot of stuff. Um, I don't think that you can go wrong. Like you mentioned how it bears out, what it looks like, where he plays remains to be seen. That's actually one of the many things I'm very intrigued about this spring. Just what's the secondary going to look like? How much are the young guys, like how much run are the young guys going to get? Um, that's going to be very, very interesting to me. Um, but I like this pickup just from a versatility standpoint. This is a guy that can do a lot of stuff and in a Womack defense, in a four-two-five defense that you need to apply pressure consistently and you need a pretty athletic secondary on the back end. Um, this seems like a natural fit where he fits. No idea, but it's, it's a good puzzle piece to have. Yeah, and you know, I'm trying to look up a little bit too how much single high safety they played at South Alabama with Womack. And, you know, Saban, I think for the most part, is going to play two high safeties like that. Seemed to be the way to go. Um, do we see more single high looks, you know, with the 425? I'm not smart enough to know exactly how that all shakes out, but kind of um, depends. I don't know. And, and, you know, who would play that center field role, I think, is also a question I would have. Because I don't know if Malachi Moore, you know, do you want him covering 50 yards left to right? Like, is that what he is as a player? I don't know. Um, I don't, you know, I haven't really, the Xavier Mincy's and some of the younger guys, I don't know exactly how they would fit that role yet. Um, so that that's a question I think they would need to answer. If they want to go that way, I think you can play still play a four two five and have two high safeties. Um, you know, you're probably going to be a little bit lighter against the run. Um, so we'll have to see how low, all that shakes out. But it's again, like you said, you have different pieces that can probably do different things. I just don't know if you have that one like obvious center field type safety coverage type of guy that um, you know really stands out to me right now. Yeah, second guy that they picked up through the portal, Josh Cuevas, who was. Tight end three for Washington last year. These stats are hilarious. Ready for this? Four catches for 164 yards and one touchdown. Um, if you look at his game log, he had one catch against, uh, what is it, week one? Boise one catch, State, yeah. yeah. One catch against Boise State, one catch against Michigan State, one catch against Arizona, one catch against Southern Cal. Um, two of his catches went for exactly 57 yards. 70-yarder, um, I think, against Arizona, right? Uh, no, it's, it says 57 yards. Interesting. Okay. Um, interesting pickup just because of, you know, they, Amari Nyblack goes to Texas through the portal. So they've got space for a tight end. I know they're bringing in two tight ends through the signing class and Jay Lindsay and Caleb Odom. Seems like there's some smoke around Caleb Odom potentially being a receiver, which personally I think that'd be kind of fun. That's what he played in high school. And also he's six, five, two fifteen before he gets into a college weight room, like, Hello, Mike Evans Jr. Like that looks like fun, especially in DeBoer's offense. Um, you know, because you look at some of the receivers, Roma Dunze, pretty big dude, right? Like 6'3, 215 or so. Um, neither here nor there, but this seems like, you know, on the surface, obviously the guy has got big play potential, but also he has spent a year in DeBoer's offense and he's going to be able to bring that experience, not just to the tight end room, but also I think just to the pass catchers in general. That in itself looks like a pretty big win, even if this guy didn't play a ton last year. Yeah, it kind of gives you that bigger. I don't say he's an outside receiver, but I don't want to say he's Travis Kelsey either. But you could put like a big guy in the slot and have him move around a little bit. Quavas um, is six three two forty. Oh, sorry, I'm talking about Odom. I, ah, I don't okay. know about Quavas first. I'll, I'll start with Odom because I think okay. honestly he might be the bigger player, the bigger name. 
um, as things stand right now to, to do things. But, um, you know, because you have a little bit of size at receiver, but your top guys coming back are Law, uh, Prentice, Henderson, who are really slot type guys, a little bit smaller. Um, I mean, you have Hale, who's a little bit lankier. Uh, Bernard comes in, I think he's 6'1". Uh, obviously, Ryan Williams, assuming he gets on the field early, is is a potential big guy on the outside. But if he spends the needed... spring in the weight room, yes, Ryan Williams will see the field. But right. he's like 6'1", 165. Like, come on, bro. Eat up. Right, right. <laughs> um, so, you know, you probably needed a little bit more size. I think that's what Odom brings. And then if you're moving Odom, um, you know, it, it depends on, like, how they view C.J. Dupree. I'm sure they've been watching film on a lot of these guys the last – few weeks here and trying to figure out what they have and you know oots um you know danny lewis played a little bit last year so it, it's quite possible they kind of saw a deficiency there in terms of what they wanted to do and i was you know it was the whole DeBoer interview yesterday on, on tide 100.9 where he's talking about i would consider to have a more pro spread identity kind of a pro offense with the tight end being a heavy part of that um i thought it was an interesting comment as well because i don't know if we thought like Washington wasn't very tight end heavy um, in terms of who their leading pass catchers were last year. You know, they weren't Notre Dame. Um, so, you know, I don't know if we saw that necessarily from Washington last year, but maybe that's something they they view as a bigger possibility here, um, especially if they don't have quite what they had at Washington. Yeah, add wide receiver right away here. So, um, yeah, I, to get to Quavis, like we'll have to see. Like he's obviously – a from a recruiting standpoint, a lower level, the totem pole sort of guy. He was unranked, um, you know, went to Cal Poly first and kind of had to earn his his way to Washington. And um, one of those guys that, you know, is the opposite of Caleb Odom. Like he, you're talking about a guy who really had to work to where he's to get to where he's at in terms of like nobody saw it in him. Like nobody was really offering him. Um, so. I don't know, like what sort of – he's not a huge guy either. He's on the shorter side, I believe. Um, yeah, quite less is 6'3", 240. Yeah, which is not huge. And, you know, some tight ends you're looking at 6'5", 6'6", 6'7". Um, so you're not – I don't know if he's like the most athletic specimen. He's not right, yeah. the biggest. He's not probably not the fastest, like – if the only thing he brings is like experience and knowledge of DeBoer's offense, I think you could still probably chuck that up as a small W. Right. And he was only at Washington for one year. Yeah. Again, had four catches. So it's not a ton of experience, but it just kind of helps you fill out your roster. I mean, you've lost Nye Black, you lost Miles Kitzelman to Tennessee through the portal. So from a number standpoint, you probably just wanted to have another experienced guy in there. So again, it's a tough guy to really get your arms around because the the exposure is so limited on him. Yeah. Um, I will say this though, like even though Washington kind of ran through Michael Penix Jr. and those three receivers last year, Jack Westover was tight end one, 46 mm -hmm. catches, 430 yards, four touchdowns. I know he got a lot of run in the postseason. I watched him in the Pac-12 championship game, the semifinal against Texas and even a little bit in the national championship game when the offense kind of mostly sputtered, but Westover got a lot of targets. Um, and then they also had Devin Culp. Um, he was tight end two for Washington last year, 16 catches, 200 yards, two touchdowns. So DeBoer wants to use tight ends. Um, so I don't know if Cuevas is going to walk in and be that receiving tight end guy, but um, you know, it, it seems like as long as the personnel is there and it makes sense, the tight ends are going to get a little bit more receiving run than maybe they did, um, you know, in Tommy Reese's iteration of the offense. Which is funny because we all thought that the tight ends would be a huge part of the Reese offense, and they never. We were really told. Were. We were told. Right. All camp. And Westover is a similar size to Cueva, 6'3", 248. You're right. He was third leading receiver, forty six receptions, or the fourth most ever in a season by Washington tight end. Uh, six catches in the Sugar Bowl, five catches against Michigan. So quietly, I guess maybe to me overshadowed by some of the talent that they had on the outside was when you got three NFL bound receivers. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that's when you think of Washington's offense last year, that's the first thing that comes to mind outside of Penix. So, um, you know, maybe there is more of an opportunity for the tight. Again, I don't think we're going to see like, you know, Cole Komet at Notre Dame type of numbers here, but um, 
I don't think Cuevas necessarily be the guy either. Like Cedar Dupree is still a pretty good player. Um, you know, if Robbie Utes can block, like he's going to get on the field. So where exactly Cuevas fits in, we'll have to see. But again, it's you add some spots on your roster. He's a guy that you have seen. You know him. He's a known quantity. You know, might as well bring him in. Makes sense to me. Uh, speaking of playoff, one of the last things I wanted to get to on today's show was college football <laughs> playoff committee um, formally confirmed the change for the 12-team playoff, which begins next year. They're going to do a 5 plus 7 format, so five conference champs, seven at-large bids um, under the 12-team format. Um, four highest-ranked conference champs are going to be seated one, two, three, four. They're going to receive first-round buys. Um, then you're going to have kind of a March Madness style first round, five versus 12, six, 11, seven, 10, eight versus nine. Um, those games will be played on college campuses, right? And then the quarterfinals, semifinals, and um, finals will obviously be in bowl game locations. Five plus seven makes sense to me, just given how college football has changed over the last couple of years. Do you have any immediate or initial thoughts on the, the change to the playoff? Um, I think, Obviously, fully expected. I think there is some kind of negotiation type things that were probably going on that led up to this. Um, and again, it goes back to you had a six plus six format when this was approved last year. The Pac-12 falls apart. You no longer have a fifth power conference um, that exists to have another automatic bid. So by default, it really would have gone to and they passed a rule change saying a two team conference you know, if we want to call it that next year with Washington state and Oregon state does not get an automatic bid as anybody can agree would be the case. But if it was still six plus six, that would have been two auto bids for group of five teams, which is both good and bad. Like let's say Alabama got an at large bid and was the six seed. Then you would have a group of five team to play in the first round. And that actually probably would have been a good thing because that would have been an easier win, but Overall, the SEC was looking at that uh, in the Big Ten, quite frankly, as it's one less team for us to get into the playoff. It's less money for us. And, um, you know, so that it, it made sense, I think, all around to move it to five automatic bids. So you're getting you're capturing the four conference champions from the, the four major conferences and you're capturing one of the group of five teams, which, you know, the SEC and the Big Ten could easily say, you guys don't want to do that. Well, we're going to go start our own playoff because we have 32 teams among us and we can be just like the NFL and uh, we don't need you guys. And I don't know how, you know, realistic or how uh, close to happening that was. I'm sure that was mentioned, you know, as a negotiation point, but um, you know, the group of five didn't really have to make this change, but if they didn't do it, then what would it mean for any playoff, any spot in the playoff for them going forward? So Again, there's kind of some hand-wringing that led to this, I'm sure. You know, there's still, I think, a lot to be determined about the playoff going forward. I know there's talk um, that Ross Dellinger's reported about, about expanding the playoff even further to 16 or whatever. Or And, again, there's still big-picture questions on what the SEC and Big Ten do, what the NCAA does with this new subdivision that they're talking about. And, how this all looks in three or four years could still be very different than what we're looking at for just this year. But for just this year, it's five plus seven, five automatic bids, top four get the top four seeds and first round buys. That gives seven at large spots. And if you ask me right now, that's probably all seven of those are SEC and Big Ten teams. I think it would have been last year um, because you have one ACC team that's probably going to get in. You have one um big 12 team which would have been arizona if you're looking at it the way things would be this year um and then you have a bunch of teams probably like lsu or Ole miss or you know penn state um notre dame could get in as an at-large team outside of a conference and that's that's going to be the meat of the new playoff in, in the first round you know, those first round games so um again expected not a huge change, but it's something that uh, once we get closer to the season and obviously closer to December, how the 12-team playoff shakes out is, is going to be a pretty big story. Yeah, that'll be uh, interesting to follow along and, and kind of just see how that morphs and shifts over the course of really November and December. Um, to give people an idea of maybe what to expect, here's kind of what the playoff would have looked like this year using the final CFP poll. 
Michigan, Washington, Texas, Alabama, all conference champs. They would have been your first round by uh, recipients. Um, so then you would have had Florida State at five. Um, believe they would have probably played Liberty, who went 13-0, 23rd ranked team. They're the highest group of five teams. So you got Florida State Liberty in the first round. Georgia at six, they would play Ole Miss. I would have liked to have seen maybe them shift a little bit so you didn't have two SEC teams playing each other in the first round. But for the sake of this exercise, six versus 11. Um, seven versus 10, Ohio State, Penn State. I feel like you could just swap Ole Miss and Penn State, and that would solve a lot of issues. And then the eight nine matchup would have been Oregon, Missouri. I think we all know how March Madness brackets work. It would have probably just gone forward from there. I don't know why it took them so long because that sounds like fun. Yeah, but and I will say it's going to be different from March Madness in the sense that the basketball tournament committee will um, specifically avoid rematches, you know, conference yeah. rematches in the first round, um, and so there are. There are some kind of artificial tweaks that are made to the bracket to avoid those. That will not be the case with the college football playoff. It They will make their final rankings one through 25 as they have for the last 10 years and just simply rank the teams as they see them. And from, there, from there, though, that's when they slot them into the seedings. And if that means that, two SEC teams play each other. If that means whoever just played in the SEC championship, well, I take that back because the SEC championship winner would be get a first round. Get a first round but let's say Ohio State and Michigan just played each other. Let's say the winner of that game lost the big 10 championship to Washington, just hypothetically. You could still have Ohio State and Michigan play each other in the first round of the playoff. Like they're not going to avoid those things artificially if that's what the rankings, their final rankings have. So those rematches could happen. Um, absolutely could happen. Or you could have a second round, a quarterfinal rematch of two teams that have played each other for the third time. Like, I don't hate say, that as much. If they're right. if they meet in the quarters, like there's only so much you can do to try to separate these guys. But mm -hmm. like if they meet in the quarters, that's cool. I my preference avoid the first round rematches if possible. I know it's not always possible, but if possible. And, I think and they may they say they won't do that. Yeah. But, you know, could you artificially change the order of the rankings? And, you know, it, it could quietly happen, but it's not going to be spelled out for them to have to do that as it is in the basketball tournament. Uh, again, you could have a team that plays three times. Yeah. Um, well, and Georgia play in September. Let's say Alabama and Georgia play again in the SEC championship game. They both get in the playoff. They both meet again in the playoff. That would be a third meeting. That could happen. Um, but I will say the other thing, too, in terms of how it would have looked this past year, you are right in terms of how the conferences were in 2023. The difference is going forward, Michigan and Washington are going to be in the same conference. Texas and Alabama are going to be in the same conference. So only two of those teams, even though all four of those were conference champions this past year, would be able to win a conference this coming year and get right. a top four seed. And that I think is still going to be a point of contention among fans. It could very well be a point of contention among the conferences themselves where you have a, such a concentration of power in the SEC and the big 10 and concentration of quality teams, but you only have two out of the first four seeds and you have an ACC winner, which, let's say it's Florida State next year, you have a Big 12 winner, let's say it's Arizona, that um, gets a top four seed in a first-round bye. And so you could make a very reasonable argument, and again, the final rankings themselves, 1 through 25, might bear this out, that the loser of the SEC championship game or the loser of the Big 10 championship game is a much better team than the winner of the ACC or the winner of the Big 12, but they're going to be seeded lower and you're going to have to play a first round game, probably at home. I guess theoretically it could be um, on the road in the first round. And that to some, in some ways puts them at a disadvantage. And I don't know what sort of staying power that has. I think there could very well be a day very soon where the SEC or the Big Ten say, we're not doing that. And we're not giving, you could start the negotiation by saying we're not going to take um, you know, the top four teams as automatic bids as conference champions and just rank them however they ranked. But you could take it a step further and say, we're not going to give automatic bids at all. 
and we're only going to do this with at large. And if there's eight SEC teams and eight Big Ten teams that are the best 16 teams or best, or let's say it's six and six, best 12 teams in the country, then so be it. We leave everybody else out. Woof. And that could be the negotiation point of the SEC and the Big Ten. And again, I, I you thought that this was settling down. You thought the 12-team playoff would solve some problems, but I don't know. Like I, I think this is not this is not at an equilibrium yet. And um I still feel like this whole setup is 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 pretty temporary. No, I think that's that's all good points. And um, you know, I don't know if it was Dellinger or or somebody else, but there's only point that I'll really add to everything that you said is that I there's I feel like it's gonna happen in the near future just because the powers that be just have been acting a certain way up to this point. Very real possibility that the SEC and the Big Ten basically take college football as a sport hostage um, so that they get what they want. And the changes to this sport are far from over. Like it is, it's only a matter of time before the the tectonic plates start to shift again. And who knows what it's going to look like five years from now, because it looks drastically different from what it did five years ago. So yeah, that's, uh, that's all I had to add to that. And that's really all the topics we had for today's show, Mike, unless you got anything else you want to get off your chest. No, no, that's it. Glad to uh, do our, our meeting as usual. The uh, associate head staff writer, Mike Rodak, always <laughs> bringing the goods when it comes to college football comings and goings. That's all we've got today, guys. We'll be back probably later this week. Uh, Going to talk some hoops. Alabama's got a pretty big uh, slate of games, really, over the final six, five quad one opportunities starting tonight. We recorded this on a Wednesday against Florida. They're going to play Florida twice over the next five games. Also got games against Ole Miss, Kentucky, and a rematch with Tennessee. So we'll dive into that a little bit um, later this week. In the meantime, though, be sure to rate and review the show wherever you listen to your podcasts, Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, even our Bama 247 YouTube page. Subscribe to Bama 247 and 247 Sports. We're still running a special 30% off annual VIP membership because we're always running a special. Be sure to take advantage of that, especially if you're a diehard Alabama fan. Thank you guys so much for listening. We'll talk to you all again soon.